Emmy Award-winning producer, actor, and comedian Larry Wilmore is back on the air, hosting a podcast where he weighs in on the issues of the week and interviews guests in the world of politics, entertainment, culture, sports, and beyond. Check out Larry Wilmore Black on the Air on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David? Former Major League Baseball player Gary Sheffield admitted that he doesn't watch baseball during the season. <laughs> I never watch the game during the season. He said it's not something that I can watch based on what I'm seeing. What I want to know is if a former Major League Baseball player can't watch regular season baseball, who can? <laughs> I really thought you were going to put me on the spot and ask how much of uh, how many hours of wrestling I actually watch every week. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> versus <a> baseball no, <laughs> I think I know the answer to that one uh, yeah no I, I think that it's that's it's a it's a great admission for him but it's sort of shocking right there's just that that uh you know this is your job this was your job now it's your job in a different way as a commentator at least I think that's the time he was talking about and um I, he just waited for the playoffs or something to, to, to actually catch up on what's going on with the in the league I mean it's it's pretty damning what do you think I feel it's funny that I don't watch baseball has become kind of a uh, a popular thing to admit. You know, yeah. it's almost like I didn't read a, a classic book that I should have read. It's it's almost it's almost to the point. I don't I don't think Gary Sheffield intended it this way, but it's almost to the point of something you are quote unquote confessing that actually you think makes people like you. You know, I just don't watch baseball anymore. Sorry, sorry, not watching it anymore. I can still be mad at baseball. I've always thought that like people, there's a group of people who are more comfortable being mad at baseball than actually consuming baseball. Sure. And well, it's also, and I mean, that's true. It's also a great way to say that you're too busy, that you have more important things going on, right? Or more interesting things going on. It's like, it's, it's uh, in, a, in a world where everybody's sort of, um, you know, retweeting their own resumes and, uh, and, and, and their own personal lives and everything else. I don't, I don't have time for baseball is a, is a, it's, it's, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a humble brag, right? It's just yes. like, Oh, what are my favorite things I had to cut out of my life? But the, but the silent implication is because I'm having too much fun doing these other things. Coming up on today's show, we answer your listener mail, including questions about the Derek Shalvin verdict up there in Minneapolis. Brendan Kerner of The Atlantic joins us to talk about a really interesting piece he wrote about a kidnapping in Mexico. Plus, you guys had lava puns, and we lavaed them like we've never lavaed anything before. All that and more on the press box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. 
Media Consumers, Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, it's Thursday, which means I throw to you to tell us that it's time for Listener Mail. That was good. Thank you very much for doing that. We got a number of requests this week to talk about the Derek Chauvin verdict. The jury up there in Minneapolis found Chauvin guilty on all counts, including second degree and third degree murder. Chauvin, of course, is a former Minneapolis police officer who murdered George Floyd. Reporter Steve Rodas asks us, through what medium did you find out the result? How did you consume the result of the case? It was on my phone, but I think more so than just the result itself. And me, I mean, the, the medium is important. Uh, it was that we, I was getting push alerts on my phone when the, I'm sure as we all were, when the, when the verdict came in and, and that it, but, but an hour before it would be announced. Um, my dad's in town visiting. So he and, uh, my wife and I, and, and one of our kids are out having lunch. We, the moment we sat down we got the, all got simultaneous text alerts, actually multiple simultaneous alerts that the verdict was on the way. And so we all just sat there through a very kind of like just anxious lunch waiting for the, the final verdict to come through. Um, so yeah, I mean, at that point there was no, uh, there's no rushing home. I certainly didn't even want to like, you know, part of you is like, you try, you try not to over engage before you have to, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly came as a, it's one, I mean, I'm sure a lot, a lot of people have said it, but it was one of those things where like the result was a shock. Sure. But it was like more of a shock than I think I had let myself even understand, you know, like the, the, the emotional, I mean, the, like the emotional reaction that I had was, was, uh, was larger than I was expecting. Can we talk about that hour between the heads up we all got and the actual reading of the verdict? Sure. Because I think I looked at Twitter and this is always happens when people who don't watch cable news are forced to watch cable news. Mm. And they get really, really mad and start saying, you know, wouldn't the world be a better place if cable news didn't exist? Yeah. It's a really interesting problem. And I don't, and if I can have sympathy for the cable news networks other than Fox for just a second, there is this problem, a programming problem, where a big event is going to happen. You absolutely need to flag for viewers that something is going to start in an hour. This is not like countdown clock to the, you know, Iowa primary in 2024. This is really something that is imminent. How do you fill that time? What do you do? And the times, you know, I jumped in, I saw Van Jones talking on CNN, which seems totally appropriate on CBS, which I watch. I saw legal analysts who had watched the case, watched every second of the case, and were talking about the evidence that the prosecutors had presented mm -hmm. and what they thought the outcome was going to be. That seemed totally appropriate. I saw lots of reports about the crowd that was gathering there in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, to sort of react to the verdict. But w what should cable news do in that instant? Well, I mean, I do think that there's a sort of public service aspect, which is just to be present. And I know that sounds really lame and impossible for the, I mean, to, to, to fully convey and for them to execute. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, there was the you know obviously there were the the announcement and then the verdict with lag trailed behind it and 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 that time i mean it's it's this is not an answer to your question it, feels, it seems like i'm avoiding the question but the but the most important thing to fill time is to fill time right i mean you you have to sure. you're just getting an anxious viewer viewer viewership to from from point a to point b 
Um, I do you think have that, to do something. You right, can't no, no, I just know. stare into a camera and say, this well, is coming up. This is coming up. I mean, you're reluctant to say the sort of the parlor games aspect of the whole thing where you're just like, well, what is it? What does a quick verdict mean? Right. Because that doesn't, that's no one's idea of like good faith journalism, but that's what's filled the past, you know, two months of this regardless is what, what they fill time with all the time anyway. And that's certainly the conversations that I think most normal human beings were having off the air, right? What, 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 what does this quick reaction mean? And yeah, I think that the, 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 I mean, the gathering crowds were an interesting, an interesting thing to report on. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's a easy to kind of misuse that data point. If you're, if you're interested in it, if you're Fox News or whoever else, but um, but I don't know. I mean, it's it it is a very it's a good question. What do you do? Yeah, the tea leaf reading uh, that you're talking about, where why did it take so many hours to come to this verdict? Why didn't they ask to see any of the evidence again? Mm-hmm. Which I heard on all the networks seems a very limited value, and seems like it's going to expire and become completely meaningless the moment you get the verdict. So yeah, I could deal with a lot less of that probably. But certainly analyzing for people that hadn't watched the case, like how was the evidence presented? Was the evidence compelling? You know, what 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 tactics did the prosecutor prosecutors use, excuse me, to prosecute the case? I don't know. There's there, there's seemingly a lot you can do in there that doesn't piss everybody off. Our pal Tom Fountain asks this, will the Chauvin conviction and other recent police killings change how journalists take police statements at face value? And I suspect he had seen, and I'm sure you saw it the Minneapolis police initial statement about the death of George Floyd that was being posted by everybody on Twitter. Even Snopes had to come in this week and say, yes, this was the actual statement that the cops in Minneapolis posted. The headline was man dies after medical incident during police interaction. This is how they described the events. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his forties in his car He was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. That was how they put it. Seemingly leaving out some very important steps in that. So if you had just taken the police statement at face value, you would have had a ridiculously incomplete and wrong impression of what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis. I mean, I know that this is the maybe so obvious that it uh, doesn't even need to be said, but it's, it's, it was sort of, it was compelling and saddening to me through a lot of this trial, how much of just sort of kind of both sidesy to the whole thing there was right i mean i guess one of the the one rede- one redeeming thing was that immediately after the verdict there was a lot of voices on fox news who said that we the right that they reached the right decision um but then there were also a lot of more notable voices uh, tucker carlson amongst them who sort of zagged in the direction of of uh you know the the jury was swayed by the potential of riots and etc cetera, etc cetera. i think oh here we go it's josh barrow had a good kind of few tweets about this um, and I'll read directly. He says, this is such horseshit. This is directly in response to Tucker Carlson's, uh, saying that the, the, the jury was swayed by, by that. Uh, he said, this is such horseshit. Conservatives who are vaguely mad about black activism, but can't actually argue for Derek Chauvin's innocence have fallen back to this theoretical argument that the jury was under undue pressure. Um, and he goes on, but 
it's true. You could see a lot of people just sort of like rebounding sort of into that position. And I think that speaks more just to the fact that you have to have account, you have to have an opposing take, right? And it's 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 saddening that 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 you have to feel like you have a, a position in this, but that's the way that the that the story that the entire narrative about black activism, about police violence, um, about um, specifically the injury and death to African American people by police, um, that it's it's become a political football because. Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but because the Republicans and the right more broadly are, you know, have are catering to a very specific slice of their electorate. Um, and they're afraid to look, well, moral and right, I guess, is the thing. The, 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 I think the bigger point is that it's, um, the, you know, the police statements that are full of shit have to be addressed as such. Uh and not and and not you they just can't be allowed i mean this discussion seems like it's almost beside the point right like why let them have why let them give them that oxygen that should have been almost the, the kind of a deciding moment that when it was proven that that statement was wrong um it it would it should have been a straight away from there but it's not you know i mean that's sort of the that's part of the just tragedy that they would have so little regard for human life that they would be protecting their officers you know rather than actually tell the truth yeah, and I and I think there's a couple things here. I think some reporters are just way too trusting of the cops. I mean, I think we can stipulate that mm -hmm. uh, for sure. I think there's also just an issue when you let's say there is a a a murder like George Floyd's murder at the hand of the hands of the police, and you're a reporter, right? You might not have access immediate access to the witnesses mm -hmm. who were there. You might not have access, immediate access to George Floyd's family. The one thing you do have access to, at least partial access to, is the cops. So the cops are coming in and saying, well, we're we're the one person you can get a hold of. So our narrative, however wrongheaded in this case, is going to be the one that gets a lot of initial airplay. Yeah. And the question is, what can you do so that you are not swallowing that line completely whole or at least thinking about it? It's skeptically. The laundry points us to this tweet by Barry Pacheski. Instead of writing police say, use police claim. Some measure of doubt is implied and it's well earned. Pacheski continues, another option, though not always possible, is just to ignore what they claim altogether. You don't have to be their stenographer. So I think it's just, you know, part of it's just <laughs> universal journalistic skeptical thinking about your sources. Yeah, I think that uh, that's right. And also in the instance where videotape exists, and this is not like a a universal problem, but there is a tendency to need sources you or, or to, for for newsrooms to be so interested in quotes and in sources that you almost publish them in defiance of your own lying eyes at, at times, right? That like it's it should like it's not just police claim. If you have video evidence to the contrary or even that seems to be to the contrary, um, yeah, I think you could use a more strong word than claim, even in the absence of other quotes from opposing. We don't need opposing sources. We don't need a, opposing viewpoints to a lie. Listener Danforth wants us to talk about the Super League fiasco. If you did not follow this, and I'm guessing you did if you're here on this sports website, more than a dozen of the major European soccer clubs gave the finger to their domestic leagues, David, and were said to reap the financial rewards of this new Super League. Now, everybody hated this idea. 
This mm-hmm. idea made baseball starting the runner on second base in extra innings look popular by comparison. I was struck, and you and I are not soccer people unless you've become one since our last podcast, <laughs> just how universal the basic idea was here for sports fans. And that universal idea is bad rich man makes sports less fun. Mm-hmm. We do that all the time, right? We do that with owners. We do that with commissioners. We kind of used to do that with players, though we don't do that so much anymore. Mm-hmm. But bad rich man makes sports less fun is a universal language. You don't need to know anything about European soccer, European football to immediately get that and immediately to get mad on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, we have we have um, well, we have like a journalist class. It's pretty expansive when it comes to professional sports in the U.S. But you know, and and there's certainly a lot of that, right? When especially you know, uh, uh, collective bargaining times, various other times when it's it's easy to point at, or or on a team by team basis. You know, no offense, but it's easy to point at Jerry Jones and be like, "Rich man makes sport bad." Um, no offense, but it's hard. To Jerry Jones. <laughs> but it's but it's um, but it. I felt like the 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 groundswell was sort of what took me by surprise more than anything. I mean, I feel like while yes, it is it is easy to say rich man make you know makes the sport bad. I feel like if this had been an American, I mean, I feel like if they had announced that the NBA was merging with the NFL, it would have been there would have been less angry Americans <laughs> than if than this soccer decision, right? I mean, I just think that there's a sort of complacency despite people's love for these games that that. That I mean that that the we saw the opposite of that when it came to the Super League. Um, it always shocks me in the modern day uh, when when and a decision. You no, know, people are the fine art of leaking decisions to gauge fan reaction or, or popular reaction is 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 fine. I mean, set that aside. But it always shocks me when somebody makes a gigantic announcement like this and then is willing to go back on it basically like five hours later, right? Yes. That the, when the reaction is so bad. It, like, how can you have not have at least had confidence in your test marketing or whatever you were doing to to prep for this decision? How can you not have the courage of your convictions, right? I mean, it's like it's like when I was a kid and my parents told me and my sister they were moving from from Kentucky to Texas. She, they, I remember my 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 mom said we cried so hard that they almost changed their mind, but but they didn't change their mind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like you've made a decision. How are you going to go? Like, how how could you have been this ill-equipped, ill-prepared for this for this reaction? If you hadn't moved to Texas, I would have cried my eyes out. <laughs> I really would. We wouldn't be here right now. Uh, Mike Morris writes, conference realignment, NFL expansion to Europe. The Super League is just another form of this content. Great to talk about for a day. Never going to happen. Now, the Super League, we could probably put in a slightly different category because this was actually announced. Mm -hmm. This is not like the eternal sports radio segment of should the NFL put a team in London or should, (laughs) you know, should the big colleges. But it was amazing to see those content streams kind of merge during the Super League moment on Twitter because I saw college football writers being like, "Okay, this is what it would look like if Texas and USC and Florida and, and Alabama and Ohio State form their own. Super League of College Football. Now, that is not happening right now. But that was just kind of like, here is some hypothetical content to go with the actual content we're getting from Europe right now. Mm-hmm. And I guess this one was a little more, because it was actually announced. Like, it was it was not floated, as you say. It was, here is a press release. Um, but it was funny just to watch those things because they are such appealing 
topics for podcast sports radio and and even pieces yeah i mean i don't even know what the i mean the 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 football powerhouse one i guess is a good parallel i think in sport i mean in like basketball it would have to be you know like the top 20 players in the league just break off and form their own league or something right does i mean form some sort of like i i don't but but even that i mean it's it's just hard to it's just hard to put it in the same in, in any kind of recognizable terms i guess college football would be the closest one just in terms of the sort of generational fandom um that that european soccer uh encompasses i it was, it's 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 really it's really an incredible story and it'll be incredible to watch the fallout now even going forward right i mean to see that like to see what these old men who are ruining sports have to face even in the absence of a super league now there's been at least one john henry uh apologetic twitter video so uh we're getting there paul <laughs> bransky asks us about the mark johnson saga did you follow the mark johnson uh twitter saga no i don't think so okay i'll give you the, the quick background here ktvb is the local nbc affiliate in boise idaho they have an anchor named Mark Johnson. In fact, Mark Johnson is the main anchor at KTVB. Mm -hmm. KTVB's Twitter account just tweeted out the words Mark Johnson. That's it. And linked to his station bio. So he said Mark Johnson was the tweet. And then <laughs> thanks to the link, there was just a like anchorman glamour shot photo of Mark Johnson. <laughs> Twitter just completely lost its mind. I don't know how anybody found this. I don't know. I would love to know what the vector from like from the KTVB account to the Iron Sheik who weighed <laughs> in on this or the Splenda corporate account. And even Mark Johnson himself seemed kind of confused. But I love the idea of just like tweeting out the name of somebody who works for your outlet and then their bio. Yeah. <laughs> do we need That's a, fantastic. Do we, we should do that at the ringer. We should Danny just have an, Kelly. an employee of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Danny Kelly. And then, and then there, Katie Baker, just a, and just kind of a general biography, just a link to all of her pieces. We should start <laughs> doing that on the press box account. Just, That's fantastic. We, should we just pause the recording for a few minutes and do all of our <laughs> colleagues? We could get some real goodwill that way. Former Wisconsin governor, Scott Walker also weighed in on this and thought about Scott Walker in a while with a kind of a touching story. Actually it says when Mark Johnson was in Milwaukee in the early 1990s, he told me he used to lift a finger on the set each night as a signal to his daughter. That's nice. Mark Johnson seems like a swell guy. We'll, we'll wait for the inevitable second round of tweets on that, but he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> this is the opposite of the milkshake duck. This is, <laughs> this yeah. is like, or the digger we deep, the more, more of a sweetheart this guy seems like. On Monday, David, we talked about journalists and values. Got into a discussion about whether journalists should be liked by their readers. Our friend Max asks us this, uh, something overlooked is if you're going to ask us to pay subscription fees regularly, shouldn't we at least think you want us to like you? It's a really complex issue, issue because as readers, we should want to support the journalist mission for its own sake, but we're human. That's a really, that's actually a really tough question. Um, I feel like, don't, don't you feel like we see this a little bit in the politicization of uh, the, the, like politics in in sports where people feel like they're th that um you know when it, when an athlete takes a political stance if they disagree with it then they're like more offended than they would be in all i mean it's just, it's not just stick to sports it's what they're actually feeling inside when they when when you realize that your your sports idol has diametrically opposed political views to you and now you can't like them anymore in the same sort of abstract 
or, 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 or like kind of condition free way, um, you shouldn't need to like somebody to support somebody. Right. But somebody, but I guess, yes, we do sort of need that sheen of plausible likability. Right. You want to be able to sort of daydream about shooting hoops with LeBron in the absence, I mean, in the absence of any sort of political potential political disagreement, if he's your favorite player, um, you know, journalism, journalism is not exactly the same, but like in some sense, they're offering an even more, what should be even more personality divorced um, service. Right. I mean, like, you know, New York times reporters aren't making, aren't doing like Coke commercials on television. Uh, they're not trying to sell you anything except that what, except the product. So uh, I know I, I, I understand the question and I do think that there is an impulse that yes, I mean, if we're going to be shelling out money, if, especially as we move towards sort of the monetization, substackization, whatever of, of journalism, but I don't know, man. I don't know. I guess I don't wonder if like Heather Cox Richardson likes me when I open that newsletter, you know, I'm not, I, I, it is an interesting question though. Well, let me tell you about something I thought about this, which is that the difference between different kinds of journalists and their ability to court the affection of their readers. Mm-hmm. It's really easy for you and I to court the affection of press box listeners. Mm-hmm. We could build that into every single segment of the podcast if we wanted to. It's easy for Sean to do that on the big pick and Chris and Andy to do that. It's easy for people like us to do it. But now think of the top tier newspaper political reporters, Josh Dossie, Maggie Haberman, Peter Baker. We could, we could list them, Ashley Park. We list them all. They're not really in that same position. Their Twitter account is not going to sound like a reader podcast. So I think this is actually a particular challenge for those like handful of newspaper reporters or people like them because they're not, you'd be shocked at how much time other reporters are spending courting the affection of the masses, right? Just look at the Twitter account of any sports writer, you know, Mm -hmm. making jokes, doing stuff with other people with, with all their readers on Twitter. They, they kind of can't do that. I guess they could do that, but it'd be kind of weird, right? They're kind of removed and they're kind of supposed to be doing something else. And essentially they're saying, the thing I have that's going to make you like me or not like me is the work I I put out every day. And that just feels, I don't know, that just feels like a very, they're playing a very different game than everybody else is. So on the one hand, you could be like, well, I like all the people at the ringer and they seem to like me back. Why is that person over at the New York Times not liking me back? Why is yeah. that person at the Washington Post? And that might be weird for a reader to think that, but it really just has to do with the difference in the publications. Yeah. No, that's, that's really smart. I mean, I think that there's, there's some, I think I might quibble a little bit about sports writers spending all that time trying to get an audience to like them. I think there's a lot of just trying to get your, your, your peers to like you and all that. Are we following the same people on Twitter? No, 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 there is. I I mean, there is, you're right there. I mean, there's, but a lot of the jokiness and just sort of like personality stuff is being driven, not specifically by like, you know, trying to enchant potential readers, although that isn't a huge element of it. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think, I think I agree with all of that. I mean, that is a big part of some people's jobs and it's an effective part of some people's jobs, you know, but I think that it, it, we kind of talked about this or alluded to it last week that the more that you sort of become a human being, 
you you do put yourself up for being liked or disliked, right? I mean, I think, and maybe it's impossible to kind of be down the middle. Maybe it's impossible to be to be neutral in 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 modern media. Um, you know, if people if the the fact that we're ta- getting asked this question, I guess, might be evidence at that point. Should we spend the next few minutes talking about how much we love press box listeners? Oh, we love you goes guys. Goes without saying. We love you guys. Oh, let us court your affection a little bit more. We did something on overused sports writer Twitter templates on the last show, David. I mentioned that every sports writer tweet now, speaking of courting the affection of your peers, I'm doing the opposite, see? <laughs> every sports writer tweet now, you're just mixing and matching genres to try to get as many readers as you can. Adam Zalanka, who's a sports writer himself, sent along a an overused sports headline template. And you're never going to believe this because it also involves listing three things every time you publish a story about sports. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a few examples here. These are actual examples from headlines. Hannah Montana, country music, and a bunny suit. Jimmy <laughs> Butler's college days. Well, wait. You have to, I assume there was a colon there after bunny oh, sorry, suit. Yes. You have to say the colon out loud. So there's three things and then there's a colon and then it's what's the piece is about. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. Here's another one. Rat poison, missed buses and sideline fireworks. The ultimate Nick Saban, Lane Kiffin timeline. Oops. <laughs> I forgot the colon again. Gut checks, Hardy's burgers and Dean's word colon. The story of Roy Williams's start at Kansas. <laughs> Now, are you seeing a particular style here of uh, headline? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, and they're all like this, and, and there's even some that aren't sports. Giant anchors wrecked boats in a Liberty clock, colon, inside, inside the storage site for Navy Museum. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's from the Washington Post. How do we settle on three examples and a colon as being the universal headline temp? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a rule of three, though. It has a nice ring to it. I understand why people do it. It just does seem very, very trite now. Yeah, I think we can uh, we can move on to other other headline templates. Finally, this question from Matthew Moore: What is your most memorable non journalism job you've ever had? I'll let you go first, David. Um, I feel like you could answer this job for me better than I could answer for it myself. The most memorable. Uh, Waco. I mean, yeah, I was gonna say managing the bar in Waco was probably pretty pretty memorable. I have a bad memory, is the thing that I mean, but that that's got to be it. David as a bar manager was kind of a great moment. It's not that different from David as a podcast host. <laughs> Go on, you're welcome here, courting the affection <laughs> of people around you, right? Making everybody feel welcome. Yeah, a steady procession of people who say like, "Man, he's taller than I thought he was, or balder than I thought he was." That that that, that sort of thing. You've got the perfect personality type for a lot of things, you know, like New York, New York bureau guy back when we had the New York bureau, mm-hmm. uh, our director, podcast host, but, but bar manager was, you know, in that same Venn diagram. <laughs> okay. Just a trusted voice, right? You know, an adult in the room, even though you were like 22 or 23 at the time. Yeah, 22. Yeah, it, it was it was great. It was a great like uh, learning experience. It was a great confidence building experience. The guy, the, the, my predecessor who taught me how to do the job was about five feet tall. And when he was like, kind of what we were like walking the floor and he was telling me how to do it, he like took a gigantic like over six foot human being by the neck and threw him out the door and down the stairs Whoa! because he was because he had been warned to not you know mosh in the dance in on the dance floor and continued to do it 
And I was just like, oh, okay. It's like people are people are very is not only is that a thing that a human can do, but people are usually very willing to do what you say when you're uh, you know, their their means of getting alcohol. Do you want to tell the listeners the very Texan name of this bar in Waco? It's no longer there. It's, it was called Six Shooter Junction. That is not a ride at Knott's Berry Farm, folks. That is an actual bar in Texas. <laughs> Six Shooters Junction. Long may it live in my memory. Do you remember what my most memorable job was in high school? Uh, at the museum? Yes. <laughs> Please. The Museum of Science and History. Oh, God. I was Where just telling cool Dominique about work. this the other day. Go <laughs> So they had a theater that was kind of like an IMAX theater, but it was actually an Omnimax theater. Mm-hmm. Which they still that, have those? I, I don't know. I really don't. I haven't been there in a while. They were, it was supposed to be like the next step up from IMAX, right? Yeah, except this one had been around since like the early 80s. Oh, okay. So it had been around forever. And it had really, it had one screen. It had really steep seats. I mean, really steep seats. And this very thrilling thing for, again, for 80s and 90s uh, kids, where at, before the nature documentary played, there was a helicopter ride over Fort Worth. That's what they showed you. And everybody just kind of lost their minds like they were on a roller coaster. It was often <laughs> screaming in the auditorium because you were flying over Fort Worth uh, or seeming to fly over Fort Worth. I remember one year I worked there, they had a, and I had to look this up to, to make sure I was not completely hallucinating. There's a documentary there, David, called The Living Sea, an <laughs> undersea nature documentary uh-huh. narrated by Meryl Streep. Wow. Soundtrack by Sting. Wow. At pretty high tone for, for the Museum of Science and History. And for, in 95, 96, I was working there. And because this theater was so steep and because people often puked during the <laughs> Fort Worth flyover, you actually had to sit in the theater and watch the entire movie. This was not like a ticket-taking thing, though. We did that, too. You had to sit in the theater with the customers and watch the entire movie. So I watched The Living Sea at least 100 times. <laughs> I bet I watched it two or 300 times. I can say every line of dialogue with it. I don't remember them now, alas. That was my most memorable non-journalism job. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I thought you were going to tell the story about the seven wonders of the modern world. Do you remember oh, that story? yes i had to do the phones well do it real quick i did the phones one day someone calls the museum this is before the internet and says do you know what the seven wonders of the world are i'm having an (laughs) argument and i listed off what i the ones i remembered and by about what world wonder number four got to the hope diamond which is certainly not (laughs) one of the wonders of the world and then by number five was the human soul and then i think i just hung up laughing oh man this internet sucks. You can't do that anymore. Let's do the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag, David, that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. David, do you want to hear the best Twitter jokes about Super League? Please. Uh, number one, any joke involving season two of Ted Lasso? Uh, the Super League knockout stages have begun. That was pretty good. <laughs> and finally, in my favorite, why I'm leaving Super League. Thanks to <laughs> Charles Pryor, the third legal minefield, and Patrick A. Bernard for that. And finally, David, there was the matter of a very unfortunate Las Vegas Raiders tweet over the week. 
the verdict in the Chauvin trial came down. Yeah. The Raiders attempting to be empathetic tweeted, I can breathe. I was looking, that was I honestly, I looked at Twitter that day and and to see who was uh, you know, making fun of the Raiders. And the first two names I saw were Sarah Spain of ESPN and KFC of Barstool. And I thought, okay, we've covered the waterfront. <laughs> everybody is everybody is upset. Uh, I was looking for the uh, Twitter jokes about that tweet and about the reaction to that tweet. This is a very deep cut from from Sean O'Shea. I got to say, it relies on this classic NFL films sound clip about the 70s Raiders. The autumn wind is a pirate. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. The autumn wind is a ratio. <laughs> if you agree the autumn wind is ratio and infrastructure congrats you made the overworked twitter joke of the week <laughs> this episode is brought to you by jiffy lube cars can be a big investment so it's important to take care of them i once got a car that i started out with twenty five thousand miles on i got it to over two hundred thousand miles because i took care of it you know how you take care of a car you take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. All right, David, The Notebook Dump. Remember those parties we used to have on the Lower East Side when we were young? Oh, yeah. I remember them well. I'm going to have you in your mind look around at all the people gathered there on our roof mm -hmm. and fasten on one Brendan Kerner. Oh, yeah. Great Brendan head of hair I, on that guy. Great head of hair on that guy. Brendan I. Kerner, the byline. Great dude. Uh, great writer. Always writes about interesting things. I got excited when I saw he has a new piece in The Atlantic, which is about a kidnapping that took place in the 70s in Mexico. I wanted to talk to him about how he wrote the piece, how he came up with the idea, and what it's like to reach out to the loved ones of the victim after so many decades. Here's Brendan Kerner. All right, Brendan, I feel like I ask this every time I read one of your stories. Where did you find the idea for this? So this actually dates back to 2012. Um, I was working on my last book uh, called The Skies Belong to Us, and that's about this kind of golden age of, of 
plane hijackings in America in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And at the very end of, of doing the research on that, I kind of became interested in what other types of political violence took place um, involving Americans in the 70s after we had the close of this era of plane hijackings in 1973. And I was looking into it and reading some old, you know, uh, Google News Archive scanned in newspapers. And I came across this story about this kidnapping of this American vice consul in Hermosillo, Mexico, a man named John Patterson. And what struck me the most when I first came across it was the fact that um, his wife actually raised money and went across the border into Mexico to try to free her husband. Um, and I just thought there was something really dramatic and, and very moving um, about someone risking everything and dealing with this incomprehensible situation and putting uh, their life on the line to save the person they love. So from there, I kind of started chipping away at it over the the years that followed. And every time I looked more closely into it and gathered another artifact or another piece of information, it became richer and more complex and more tragic and more gripping. And I, I just knew I had to write about it. And as a writer, this is your happy place, right? Finding a clipping. You're, you're not a guy who's going to go on Twitter and find the idea for your next piece. You want to find it on newspapers.com or on microfilm, somewhere like that? Yeah, absolutely. So my first book uh, is called Now the Hell Will Start. I came out in 2008, and that was about um, a Black American soldier in World War II who uh, was assigned to build a road in Burma and, and kind of ended up going native uh, with one of the hill tribes up there in the Indo-Burmese wilderness. And I got that through a footnote in a bibliography I got from a, an archives out in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So I feel like almost always the best ideas flow from some little snippet you just stumble across in a, a place that's been overlooked, essentially. All right, let's set up the Atlantic piece for people who haven't read it. What were John and Andre Patterson doing in Mexico in 1974? Yeah, so this was a relatively young couple. They were both, uh, I think, 31 years old at the time. Um, John Patterson, uh, from a somewhat uh, well-off family in Philadelphia, had kind of been a little direction directionless in life, uh, had gone to business school, had worked for uh, President Nixon's uh, Price Control Commission in Washington, D.C. for a while. But what he really wanted to do ever since he was a teenager, in fact, was be a diplomat, that he was really interested in exploring the world um, he thought this might be a romantic lifestyle, a way he could serve his country, um, and a way he could raise his family uh, to be multilingual and, and to explore. Um, so it was a really something that he and Andra uh, Patterson, his wife, both really wanted together. And so, you know, at the age of 30, uh, John went into the Foreign Service Training Program and studied Spanish. Um, and he was assigned uh, as a very you know, entry-level position to be a vice consul at this consulate in Hermosillo, Mexico, and that's the capital of Sonora State in northern Mexico. And he was really put in charge of agricultural affairs, promoting trade and agriculture. And so he arrived in uh, January of 1974, and when the story opens uh, in The Atlantic, it's March 74, and uh, he goes to work uh, one day, and he's supposed to go out and meet a bunch of ranchers uh, from the Hermosillo area and talk to them about how they can improve their yield of beef on their cattle. And he's going to bring them a bunch of uh, a list of educational film strips they can order through the consulate. And he goes out to this meeting and he doesn't come back. And that's really the beginning of the story. And what struck authorities as odd about his disappearance? Sure. So this is uh, another thing that gripped me all the way back in 2012 when I first came across this story is that he goes to this meeting 
he doesn't show up for the meeting, doesn't come back to the consulate, and the the consulate closes for lunch. And when they rope him back up again at 2 or 2.30, uh, there's a note slipped under the door in John Patterson's handwriting. Uh, and it's clearly been dictated to him. And he says that I have apparently been taken hostage by the People's Liberation Army of Mexico, and they want half a million dollars in ransom, and here's instructions on how my wife can deliver this ransom. And it was interesting, first of all, that he'd obviously written this note in his own hand. Uh, Someone had forced him, apparently, to write it. And second, that no one had ever heard of this People's Liberation Army of Mexico. And there were many, many, uh, particularly left-wing paramilitary and guerrilla groups uh, in Mexico at that time. Um, But this is not one that was on anyone's radar whatsoever. And if I'm not wrong, another thing that really sort of confuses the authorities at the outset here is that this group, the supposed group, demands in this letter that they don't want any publicity. Right. And these kind of groups want publicity as a general rule. It's it's very uh, the polar opposite of what most terrorist organizations want. Uh, you know, terrorists gain what they want by getting maximum publicity. Um, you know, that's how they kind of project their power. They may be very small, but if they can get their name out there and make people afraid by disseminating their acts of violence through the media, then that's a big win for them. And in this letter, uh, this note written in John Patterson's hand, it says, you must not tell anybody this is going on. If you if you let any word of this leak or you do anything uh, to, you know, to to make people, the public, aware of what's happening. We're going to kill one American diplomat or their family every week. Uh, so they were really, really clear about not wanting any media or press involved in this. Richard Nixon makes a cameo here, as does Henry Kissinger. How did American policy about these kidnappings affect the Patterson case? So this is what I found really interesting in my research about this. You know, terrorism was a kind of new phenomenon in its modern definition. Um, and there had been, in the years prior to this, uh, several kidnappings and politi- acts of political violence involving American diplomats abroad. Um, and there was one in particular in 1973, just a year before, uh, in which uh, two very high-ranking diplomats in Sudan were taken hostage um, by a Palestinian organization uh, in Sudan and then executed. And in the course of the uh, in course of that drama, uh, Richard Nixon, President Nixon, gave a press conference at the White House uh, while these diplomats were being held hostage. And actually, a negotiator from the State Department was in the air, flying to Khartoum to negotiate for these men's lives. And Nixon said in this press conference, he said, "You know, uh, we're." never going to give in to any demands. Like, we're not going to negotiate with people who do this. And it was kind of an off-the-cuff remark. And after that, uh, really, U.S. policy on these situations, this no negotiation with terrorist policy, was really shaped to conform to this off-the-cuff remark that President Nixon had made. So it's something that had been discussed because of this increasing problem with kidnappings and assassinations of U.S. diplomats. But it was really in that moment in this Sudan crisis that Nixon kind of just says something at this press conference and kind of shapes American policy to this day. So when I hear you say that, when I read that in the story, that strikes me as as a kind of recurring element of your writing, whether it's not just true crime. And by the way, we are absolutely surrounded by true crime in our lives right now, our reading and watching lives. Sure. It is a crime that interacts with the times or interacts with politics in a larger way. Am I right in saying that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's a prerequisite for the kind of stories I'm going to tackle. Um, I'm not just looking for things that are sensational in their own right. Uh, I'm looking for uh, crimes or acts of violence or events, uh, tragedies that can tell us something about American history and about why our society is shaped the way it is today and and hopefully some deeper human truths as well. I really try to have a, a stew of themes and ideas in these pieces. Um, so certainly I look for... A central narrative that's dramatic and people want to follow from start to finish, but it can't just be uh, sensational for its own right. It has to speak to something larger to justify the time and effort that goes into these projects. Okay, John Patterson's been kidnapped. He has gotten the uh, authorities have gotten this very odd note from the kidnappers. What was the FBI's first theory of this case? Yeah, so pretty quickly, uh, the FBI Bureau in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, um, is the one that's kind of put at the lead of this investigation. And at that time, it's actually run by um, someone who'd been a, a right-hand man of the recently deceased J. Edgar Hoover, uh, and very uh, almost reactionary in his politics. And there's a, a pretty quick uh, assumption on, on the part of, of him and his bureau that this uh, has to be what they call a self-kidnapping, that this is a hoax that John and Andre Patterson got together and are faking this to get money. Um, and so what they do is, and they kind of convince Washington, D.C. that this is the case, and that becomes the prevailing theory in Washington as well. And actually, a ton of resources are spent investigating the Pattersons. And one thing that kind of stunned me when I got a lot of uh, documents from the FBI ver, uh, via FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, um, was how much time and manpower was invested in investigating the Pattersons and particularly uh, the politics of the Pattersons. And there's a lot of documents I dug up where these agents are reporting back and investigating you know, uh, anti-Vietnam War marches that Andre Patterson participated in, uh, checking to see you know, what they thought of civil rights movement. Um, there was a deep suspicion and a deep distrust of these people because they might be construed as having somewhat liberal leanings, uh, even though, of course, John Patterson had volunteered and, and decided to devote his life to serving his country, uh, do the most patriotic thing possible, and was serving at the, at the, at the pleasure, really, of a Republican president in many ways. So uh, it was really, I think, puzzling that so much uh, time and resources were invested in checking out these suspicions about these people who are suffering. Andra is able to put together the first part of this ransom money, which is $250,000, a lot of money in 1974, a lot of money today, too. What happens when she follows the instructions and tries to drop off the ransom with the kidnapper? Yeah, so the, the note had been very specific about what was to be done with the money. Uh, she was to go to a specific hotel in Nogales, Mexico, um, called the, the Frey Marcus Hotel, a uh, big hotel there, just a block from the American border. And she was supposed to be contacted by the kidnappers at 8 a.m., uh, two days after the kidnapping. And so actually, uh, John's family were the ones who raised the money. Um, his mother... Uh, was able to contact a friend of the family who was a department store heiress. And she personally guaranteed a loan from a bank in Philadelphia. And they wired the money to Arizona. They picked it up in Tucson um, and then went to, to across the border. And this is actually one of the images that 
really stuck with me early on was this this young woman not really knowing what's going on and, and just trying to save her husband and crossing the the border at Nogales with a quarter million dollars uh, in a bunch of Girl Scout cookies boxes, which is how they delivered the money. And she goes to this hotel and actually the FBI kind of tagged along, uh, somewhat to the consternation of, of, of Mrs. Patterson and, and some people in the State Department who were trying to protect her. They wanted to stake out the payment and try to follow whoever picked it up and see if that could bring them to the perpetrators. She waited there, um, but no one ever showed up to take the money. Um, and that kind of begins the real drama, and it really becomes a a very long saga of her trying to recover her husband. Now, I mostly want to leave it there. So if people haven't read the story, they can discover how this turns out. But we'll we'll tease a little bit of what is effectively the second half of your piece. Can you tell us how one of the figures we will meet in the story wound up at the North Vietnamese prison known as the Hanoi Hilton? Yeah, so there's a really important figure in this story named Bobby Joe Cassie. Uh, he's got a fascinating backstory. Um, basically, a guy from a, a really, really tiny town in the Texas panhandle, fought in Korea, um, he served in the military for many years. And then in 1962, actually, he, uh, under false pretenses, rented a plane and then flew it, flew it to Cuba while he was AWOL from the army. And uh, tried to uh, get a political asylum in Cuba, was sent back to the U.S., uh, actually did a few years in prison in the U.S. Next kind of pops up on the public radar in 1970. Um, he shows up in uh, Northeast Thailand, uh, posing as a movie producer. And he rents another plane, and he says that he's scouting jungle film locations up by the, the border uh, with Vietnam. And... Uh, he rents this plane and he hijacks it. He pulls out a pistol on the on the pilots and he forces them. He says, I want to go to this beach in North Vietnam, about 100 miles north of the, the north-south Vietnam border. And uh, these pilots uh, drop him off on this beach. They land on this white sand beach. And Bobby Joe could see this kind of like doughy, bes- bespectacled, uh, um, you know, American. And I guess at that time in his late 30s, jumps out with his pistol in a briefcase and the pilots take off and they look back and they just see like hundreds of these Vietnamese villagers just encircling Bobby Joe Cassie. And uh, then no one hears about him again for almost three years. Winds up at the Hanoi Hilton. He is tortured at the Hanoi Hilton or, or in sights around then. Then he winds up coming back to the United States on the plane, the same plane as John McCain. Yeah, and this was a real revelation for people who were aware of who Bobby Jokasi was. Um, everyone assumed he was dead. It just seemed so crazy. Um, and all these American heroes are getting off these cargo planes in the Philippines um, in 19, March of 1973, John McCain being the most prominent. And you see that one of the last people to get off the plane is Bobby Jokasi, the only civilian on the plane, actually. Um, and he actually refuses to answer questions. They hustle him to a bus. Um, actually, the Thai government makes noises about extraditing him back to Thailand because of, of hijacking the plane. It turns out the, the plane charter company was owned by the Crown Prince of Thailand. Um, mm. They made a big mistake there. But the, we don't extradite him. And instead, he actually ends up being invited to the White House for this huge celebratory dinner uh, in May of 1973 with all the other 
uh, POWs who'd been at the Hanoi Hilton and had just been released. That is just absolutely incredible. We'll leave we'll leave the narrative there, and I'll ask you a little bit about the reporting process. Once you stumble onto this story, you find the website for Andra Patterson. Now you have to email her and say, in so many words, I want to write a story about your husband's decade old decades old kidnapping. What does it feel like to send that email? Uh, it's really nerve wracking. Um, at that point, when I did that, I want to say it was either. I think it was 2016. And so I think one big thing I wanted to do before I did that was make sure I knew a lot about this case. Um, I didn't want to contact her too early on. I wanted her to know how invested I was and how devoted I was and, and how much work I'd already put in. Writing that email and pressing send, I, I do remember it because I spent several days writing this email, which was probably only about two or three paragraphs. Um but I knew it was critical, and I knew that the story could only attain so much complexity and richness without her participating and sharing her memories. Um, and so I really agonized over every word. And of course, I hit send, and I think five minutes later, you get in that mode of like, she hasn't responded yet. What did I do wrong? Um, and she did respond, though, very, very simply. And I, I remember this very clearly. She said that it made her stop in her tracks. Um, this is something that no one had brought up to her for many, 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 many years. And I think even a lot of people close to her didn't necessarily know about her, or at least the full contours of what had occurred. Um, and so I think that she was she was genuinely shocked uh, and just floored to, to hear from a journalist who was looking into this and had done so much work on it already. You're writing her more than 40 years after it happened. Why, in that, in that first email or in your early conversations with her, why do you tell her you're doing this? Why do you want to write about this story? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest thing I told her, I, I, one of the first things I did is send her a copy of my last book. And I was like, these are the kind of stories I do. And, and as you noted, I, I try to find a saga or a drama or a central narrative, but I try to make that central narrative illuminate something important. Uh, to my mind, about American history and American society and the human condition. Um, and I basically expressed to her, like, this is what I've devoted my life to doing, is telling these kinds of stories. And it's important to me because I feel like this kind of work can illuminate a lot about our country and the state of who we are as a people and, and who we are as, as human beings who interact with one another. Um, and I said that this story resonated with me. And one of the reasons is because I uh, frankly admire you. Um, I admire the fortitude you had in the face of this utterly incomprehensible situation. And I, I really told her also about how my evolution of thinking about these kinds of stories has been affected by my own aging and becoming a, a, a father uh, a couple times over and, and how your view of the world is a little different uh, when you have a family and how it changed the kind of stories I wanted to tell and, and how I was just gutted uh, by what had happened to her and just amazed by the bravery she had shown in this completely bewildering, perplexing circumstances in, into which she was thrust in 1974. And Andra ultimately agreed to help you write the story. Why? Uh, it was a tough one. Um, she was very reluctant. Obviously, there's incredibly traumatic memories, very difficult memories. And I have perhaps my most vivid memories of trying to talk to her about sharing what she knew. Um, she actually came up to New York eventually to, to meet with me. Uh, we went for coffee. And you know, my mode in all of these situations is to start with small talk. 
Um, I'm a big believer that that's a way to break the ice, just talking about just this, that, and the other thing, my kids and New York City or whatever. And she had no interest in that. She cut me off after about 30 seconds. And she was like, I'm not doing this. What do you want with me? Why would I possibly want to do this? Um, And what's interesting is I think that she was so hesitant and reluctant. And one reason she cited was that she was scared. She was scared that... um, the perpetrators behind this might come after her. And I, in that moment, was able to give her a piece of information that put her fears to rest um, and tell her things she didn't know about. And it meant something to her. And I feel from that point forward, we were able to slowly build a relationship of trust with one another. And how long between that meeting and your first interviews with her about the piece? I think it was about six months. Um, I think that I started uh, going down to visit her in the the late summer, early fall of 2017. Um, and I went down there several times um, over the next several years to, to sit with her and also her daughter as well, um, who was a five-year-old child when the central uh, events of the story took place. But we we talked for, for many, many hours, and um, that was valuable, but was maybe just as valuable was the fact that in her attic, uh, Andra Patterson had a, a file box um, that was marked the case. And it's something she hadn't opened in literally like 40 years, something like that. And she brought it down for me and um, let me go through it and take photographs of what I needed and borrow what I needed. And that was a real treasure trove. And there's no way on earth the story could have been as, as rich as it turned out to be without those that documentation. What did Andre think of the finished piece? Uh, interestingly enough, I emailed her the, the day after it came out and I asked, you know, what she thought. Um, and she told me she hasn't read it yet. Um, that it's she, I, she's working up the, I guess, the courage to read it. Um it's, uh, she's very emotional about all of this. Um, and when I told her the day that it was going to be published, you know, she was like, well, I need to be among my, my family and my loved ones on that day. Um, so I haven't heard from her since then. So hopefully she's read it and we can have a nice, you know, she did say that once the smoke clears, we're going to have a nice long conversation about it. Um, as usually happens in these things, I'm sure there'll things she'll take issue with, um, but overall, I hope that uh, she feels that I did right by her and right by right by her husband. So we're talking about a nine-year time frame for you from 2012 to 2021 when this is actually published. Did the piece turn out to be what you thought it would turn out to be way back in 2012? There were a lot of bumps in the road. Um, so I did spend a lot of time trying to find the right format. For this. Um, and for a long time, I thought this was going to be a book. Uh, I thought that was the right format for it. And um, for various reasons that are, are probably too, too, both too complex and too boring to go into. Oh, I don't um, know. That. This is a media podcast. <laughs> uh, let's just say that um, I, I tried to do it as a book and there wasn't a lot of interest uh, in the publishing industry in a book. And that was a real, that was a real setback for me. Um, that was a, a, um, a real stinger for me. Uh, I felt so emotionally invested in this story. I, I felt like there was more than enough to sustain a book. And and I really had faith in that that version of the project. And so I kind of had to lick my wounds a little bit uh, after that. And 
I realized there was no way in the world that I was going to let this just only exist on my hard drive. I had to find a way to tell it. Um, and I was really fortunate in that I had a, a very old editor uh, from my days of writing at Slate, uh, and even before that for an, a defunct magazine called Legal Affairs, an editor named John Swansburg, who's now at The Atlantic. And I talked to him about this, and he just got it. He he uh, he got it immediately, and uh, a lot of the reason this this came out in the first place is is his faith in this project. And I think we started talking about this in two thousand, either late eighteen or early nineteen. Uh, started as an Atlantic project and went through many drafts. Um, a lot of a lot of killed darlings, a lot of <laughs> details left on the cutting room floor for sure, but. Um, I'm really happy with the choices we made overall, and um, I'm really I'm really proud of the piece we were able to create. Good dude, John Swansburg. The um, now could we have the reverse happen here, where book publishers now read this in the Atlantic, they see the sweep of the story, and say, "Hey, you know what? That would make a really good book." Uh, I I would certainly that would be wonderful. Um, I know that there was a ton that I wasn't able to put into this story. Um, and I would love to, to keep working on this. Um, I think there's more to tell. Um, so we'll see, uh, right now I'm just kind of like recuperating from, uh, from all the labor that went into it. It was a really, I really went through the ringer on this one. Um, no pun intended. And, uh, it's been a little, I, there is a certain emptiness you feel when you throw yourself into something so completely for so many years and it comes out. And you kind of realize it's out there and you're not going to work on it in the same way again. And there have been a few days where I've just felt a little bereft, <laughs> a, a little, you know, f- forlorn and just wondering what comes next in some ways. And I have other projects going on, but 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 a piece of me w- hopes I can continue to work on this in some fashion. One last one for you, Brendan. We mentioned um, crime stories and different formats and genres. Is the long form podcast an interesting genre for you? Because that feels like one in addition to the book that would accommodate the kind of stories you like to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I've definitely spoken to, you know, uh, podcast creators um, in the past about potential projects. And a big reason I haven't been able to get going on anything in that space is because I was so committed to this. Um, so that might be something I tackle next for sure. Uh, I'm a big fan of the ones that are are done supremely well. Um, and I think it's a wonderful format. I do think you probably have to approach your sources in a slightly different way. Um, I think there's different uh, walls or barriers that can come up or down based on if people know their voices are going to be actually broadcast. Um so we'll see. That's something I definitely want to explore. And I feel like now that I'm in this mode of a little bit hitting the reset button, uh, that may be the next you know, big multi-year project I tackle it might just be a podcast rather than a, a, an 8,000-word magazine story. We'll see. You can read Brendan Kerner's story, A Kidnapping Gone Very Wrong in the Atlantic right now. Also check out his books, The Skies Belong to Us and Now the Hell Will Start. Because among Brendan's many virtues is the ability to come up with the coolest book titles on earth. Brendan, thanks for coming on the Press Box. Uh, thanks for having me, man. All right, Cypher David Shoemaker, guess is the strained pun headline. Yeah. Tuesday's headline about marriages in front of an Icelandic volcano was lava in a cold climate. And dude, there are times <laughs> when our listeners are so much better 
than the headline pros? Oh, please. This was one of those times. Uh, Lewis Millman says the headline should have been eruptuals. Eruptuals. <laughs> nuptials. Uh, Dave Bray says lava actually. Lava <laughs> actually. See, that's it. That's where that's what I was thinking at the time. Not lava, not that specifically, but love but lava and love swapping. That, that was really good. And I can even do better. D. Colin Jondrell sent me this one. Love in a time of caldera. <laughs> Wait, love what? in a time of caldera. Now, come on, man. That is a great strain pun headline. I just that's followed great. D. Colin Jondrell. That's, that's even, to me, that's beyond the, the Oxford comma. You just got followed by the press box account. Congratulations on some great stuff. Today's headline, David, comes from Howard Williams. Actually, sent by a lot of people. I'll give Howard the credit. It's from The Economist. It is a, an article about Vietnamese pho. Vietnamese pho. And the idea is pho, David, is not just a thing from the old South Vietnam and the old North Vietnam. It is for all of Vietnam. And it has a very interesting history, which the author Emma Irving relates. What was The Economist's strained pun headline? Pho, is it pho? Uh, is it like a pho? Gosh. Something for everyone or something for... Why don't we start with a, the common American mispronunciation? Oh, foe. Of, um, mm, so we can fo, play with that, right? Friend or foe. Uh, um, uh, Remember, this is uniting everybody. Uh, oh, common foe or mm. a, 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 my, enemy, my foe. Um, oh, you got it, bud. Vietnam uh, is a country divided by a common pho. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. Divided by a common fa. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. Big week next week on the Press Box. Monday, David, there is a new season of Slow Burnout over at Slate. Oh, yeah. Noreen Malone, one of my favorites, is going to join us to talk about that. And then Thursday, mm, Thursday, the <laughs> NFL draft is happening. What are we going to do for the NFL draft? Well, I thought we should just get a little bit organized. I mean, we always talk about sports cliches. We talk about, uh, you know, the sort of way that these shows are presented and news events like the draft are covered. So I said, let's just do a, uh, let's just do a press box glossary and go through all of the cliches, all of the overused words, all of the terms employed uh, repetitively, repeatedly when the media covers the NFL draft. A devil's dictionary. Devil's of dictionary NFL, of the NFL draft, yeah. Of NFL draft cliches. And we're going to be joined by one of our favorites. Danny, I've got a first ground grade on him, Heifetz. <laughs> for draft cliches. Plus more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. Brian.